This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created as a place for addicts to get better, to be treated with compassion and connection rather than control. It was founded by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, uh, to make the right kind of place to get treatment. They treat co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical if you're kicking benzos or heroin or alcohol or really when you're kicking anything. A nice, comfortable detox is always preferred. They have amenities including sound bath meditation, sweat lodge, yoga, surfing, equine therapy, you name it. And they have a staff with decades and decades of experience. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I totally, totally recommend Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you within the Dopey Nation through the Dopey Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. I've been hinting that there will be major changes in the Patreon account. I haven't changed them yet, but there will be major changes. For now, kick down a few bucks, help keep the dopey flowing, keep it happy, joyous, and free. Obviously, if you can't throw a few bucks to the dopey Patreon, please don't enjoy the show. We love you. And money would be nice, but we love you, not your money. Also, I have snapbacks and ski hats and stickers and socks all available through uh, Dopey uh, at the Venmo thing. Just Venmo me at Dopey Podcast, and I will ship it to you. Also, we have Dopey Fashion available at DopeyPodcast.com. All that's going to change soon. There's going to be a new Dopey store, and everything is going to be in one Spot, so that's very exciting. But for now, that's all the ads we got. Enjoy the show, and here we go. Oh, I'm going to tell you something. I recorded this whole episode um, the other day, and tonight I'm recording the ads. And I just ended uh, keto, at least for tonight. I, I indulged on fucking animal crackers and big chocolate chunks that were semi sweet, and uh, a yogurt pop. And uh, a couple of dark chocolate Milanos and some animal crackers. And I feel like a little bit high on the sugar. So that's just me being totally honest. All right, here's the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. And um, there's a lot of talk lately about me being not kind to my father. So I decided for a nice change of pace to have my father, uh, Alan, open the show with me. So welcome back to the show, Dad. Uh, hi. Hello, Dave. This is very strange. Is very, it, very strange. He has a chair. He has the microphone. Wow, it's almost like respectful, almost. Recently, there was a review that said, I interrupt you too much. Absolutely. So <laughs> what do you say about that, Dad? So when I interrupt you so much, what are you trying to say? I, I have a theory. I want to see what you're trying to say, and then I'll tell you my theory. 
obviously, whatever I was trying to say, I thought would be worth saying, and then you interrupted. But I don't think you do it that much, actually. My theory is that I save you from the fact that you have nothing to say, and I interrupt you to keep keep it moving. Oh, you're trying to help. Yes. (laughs) I'm trying to help everybody. And um, now listen, we're in a crazy state of affairs in the world. World is all fucked up, and I'm incredibly worried, and there's this fucking... Uh, coronavirus devastating the world. Fucking, there's routines where people in hazmat suits are grabbing people with sticks and batons, lassoing them. Fucking de Blasio's on TV telling you to stock up on masks and, and canned goods, and my dad says he has a painter's mask on the terrace. That's what he says. Yeah. Do you want my opinion on He's going, this? he's flying to California in the height of this epidemic. What are you doing, Dad? This, I don't think I don't think you should be so panicky. I think you need to relax. This is this is not the end of the world. This is really not. So you don't see this coronavirus hitting New York City? It's. I don't think it's going to be devastating at all. I don't think so. I mean, I hope it's not. I hope it's not. But I think it's not going to be as bad as everybody is portraying. I mean, panic is not good. I have to say this also. My dad just ate over here, and it is disgusting. He had uh, he had pickled herring with some kind of creamy sauce, and then he had potatoes with mustard. He had the most old Jewish man meal that an old Jewish man could have. The, the herring didn't have any cream sauce. Again, he is inaccurate. It didn't smell good, and oh my god, it's still yeah. the smell is lingering. It, I feel bad for the next guest. Well, I was starved to death here because I had to sit and 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 hold my. I mean, it was a lot of hours that I was forced not to eat here. If you want, nobody. To I asked you to leave. <laughs> didn't I? Didn't I say you should go? You want to explain? Fucking Chris's family. And for those who don't know this, uh, Dopey was a podcast founded by me and my very good friend Chris, and Chris overdosed and he died. And, um, and everybody's still picking up the pieces. And his family has uh, hired a videographer to make a documentary about Chris's life. So they came here today to interview me, and I was like, Dad... I think you should go while we do the interview. And my dad sits in his office with the door open. And as they're asking me questions about Chris, my dad's ripping up papers. And I'm saying, it's like, what are you fucking doing? <laughs> time out. Time. First of all, they blocked the whole door with their screen. There was no way I could get out. And I didn't think I was interrupting anybody in, in, in terms of ripping all the bills I was getting. So anyway, you're exaggerating. But I was starving to death from 10, 1030 in the morning until 2. Two in the afternoon, I was trapped. Now, before we kick my dad off the show, first of all, I want to see, is there anything that you, I feel like I've, you know, is there anything you need to say that you feel like I haven't let you say on the show? I don't think so. I think um, I they think say let Alan talk. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes. I, listen, you don't have to have me talk that much. I think you get over overwhelmed. The more you get of him, the less you the, want. Exactly. I need to have less appearances. I need to be less visible around here. So there's no scientific take on the coronavirus possibly being a problem. There's, it, look, in history, there have been lots and lots of plagues. Uh, I was. I wanted everybody to understand that when I was born, there were 3 billion people on earth. Now there's over 7.5 billion. So it seems like God wants to thin the herd more than anything. 
I don't think we should use the term God the way you use it. So maybe the universe wants to balance out the too many people on the planet. Uh, This is not going to do it. Maybe climate change is going to push it. But but what I'm saying is is that we've overcome plagues in the past. Uh, So who knows how many people that might die, including your grandchildren. uh, But but as a people, we will overcome, is what you're saying, as humanity. For some reason, it seems that children are not being affected by this virus, which is very... Maybe God is sparing the innocent for a change. Uh, Do we want to do a whole segment about God one day? No, but before before you say anything that's totally not worth using, I want to tell a quick story, which is that just now... Just now, Mark Marin gave a big shout out to Dopey um, because on Sunday, me and Linda went to see him perform, and uh, me and Linda drive to Huntington. To, uh, well, listen, me and Marin don't have the best relationship, <laughs> but I but I really am a dick, and I and I pursue having a relationship with Marin. And uh, once in a while, I've offended him, and he's ignored me. But somehow, I got us back on good terms, and I saw that he was playing on Long Island. So I texted him, you know, me, I said, me and my wife might uh, get a babysitter to come see you on Long Island. And he said, okay. And uh, then he said, if you do, I'll put you on the list. And I was like, cool. And, uh, and my dad came out to hang out with the kids, and Linda's parents came out to hang out with the kids, and me and Linda drove to Huntington. And the whole time, I was worried that Marin was going to forget to put us on the list. But when we pull up to the spot, Marin's just walking down the street. I swear to God, I've seen Marin randomly in the street four times. Wow. It's like, it's just, I don't know. There's some. I think it's something to do with God and the universe. Really? But so I see him, and I course i run after him and i give him a new dopey hat and some dopey socks and i say do you want to come to dinner and quite randomly he comes to dinner and me marin linda and his friend uh from the let there be talk podcast dean del rey have a beautiful dinner in which marin buys us these beautiful portions although um the fucking waiter ignored me and Linda, wound up bringing Marin extra food. They didn't serve us for a while. It was like the rich are getting richer over here while we're starving. Then Marin says, I'll take care of everything. Oh, and nice. he pays, leaves, and then me and Linda get our meal. Um, but it was awesome. And then we saw his set, and it was great. And then on his podcast, he said I was his big buddy. Yeah, yeah. But, and then maybe something else happened. Yeah, he also revealed my last name to the world. Which happens to be my last name as but well. But they don't know that. <laughs> but So I want to give a big thank you to Mr. Mark Marin for giving us a shout-out. And I think that means that we're on, the, we're on the right path. My dad doesn't have any sense of this Well, thing. I don't know how to say the word anonymity very well. But I just did, I think. And that means you don't have any more. What do you mean? How many listeners does this guy have? Marin, a lot. Obama was on his podcast. Ah. Now, now, why don't you read a review before this gets very, very stale? Because the reason that I deal with you properly is I make you not sit down. You can't be relaxed. When you're re- you need to be off balanced for it to be a good appearance. Now, come here. Can you read? I have to get my glasses. No, you don't need glasses. Yes. Here. Which one am I reading? Uh, not here, not you. One. Uh, all right. Much, much love to Dave, Linda, Allen, Ray, and everyone from Lydia. I can't read this, David. I need my glasses. Ay, ay, ay. Quick review. You're ruining, by the way, you're ruining the show. Just so you know. Hold on. Uh, 
All right, we're going to start from the beginning. Best podcast I've ever listened to, five stars by Lydia Iampels. Much love to Dave, Linda, Alan, Ray, and everyone from Lydia in the recovery hotspot of St. Paul, Minnesota. I love Dopey, and I recommend it to all my friends in various stages of recovery. Each episode is a little something different, and the quality stays consistently excellent. Wow, she's got good taste. I am one of those post-This American Life Dopey Nation members. My favorite guests have been Aurora, who still has her stuff on the terrace, you know, uh, Amy Dresner, and Kajo, who was Kajo? That's the one you were attracted to from um, the, the oh, alien Chris, show. Kristen, Kristen, somebody, right? Keep up the amazing work and congrats on DopeyCon and the Dopey scholarships to treatment. Toodles. All right, Dad, is there anything you want to say before you go? Oh, uh, yeah, everybody, please stay healthy out there and, uh, and stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. All right, that's great. Thanks, Dad. Now, if you guys think I interrupted him too much... Uh, you're wrong, but if you did, send in an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you really want him to do his own podcast called Al-Anon or The Most Boring Podcast Ever or An Old Man Reflects on Science, Judaism, and Whatnot or How Herring is Not a Disgusting Thing to Eat in the Middle of the Day Around Microphones, I feel bad for the next guest because the... The, the stench of the herring lingers. Anyway, send in an email to make my dad feel good. But even better, write a review because my dad watches the reviews like uh, a farmer watching his crops grow. So go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, and don't write anything too mean about me. It's very exciting. We have a guest coming in in a minute. His name is Dan Perez. He was the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine for 15 years, and he wrote a book, and he's going to tell us all about it. That's not the best intro, but here he is, Dan Perez. It's more like Paris than Perez. It's more like Terrace with a P. I like that. Paris. Paris. Um, the dude who fucking read your book calls you Dan Perez. The fucking dude. By the way, in the audiobook? Yes. See, I haven't listened to that. I, I, but I gave them an actual recording of me saying my own fucking name Why didn't over you and book, over though? again. You know what? I asked them, hey, do you guys want me to do this? They're like, no, we're going to get an actor to do it. I, it kills me that he mispronounced my name. It absolutely kills me. I didn't know that until just this second. I just did it for you. I'm so sorry. Oh, and yet man. I feel kind of special having I, I appreciate it. it. I appreciate it. It was a big moment. The th- Welcome to the show. Thank first you. Of all. Thank it's you. a pleasure to have you here. I'm happy to be now, here. Now, just so you guys understand, this is a very big-time figure in, in journalism. You're a big-time journalist. I, I was a big-time journalist, yeah, um, for sure. Big-time journalist, big-time drug addict, big-time pill popper. Um, but I think, and, and the book is, is, is an amazing memoir. It's called as needed for pain. I, I enjoyed it very, very much, but it's very understated. Like you were on top of the world, but you don't really say you're on top of the world. You know what I mean? It's not in my nature to do that. And, um, because I'm a drug addict, I've always felt like I was, you know, less than anyway. So it would just be a super douchey move for me to come and be like, hey, everybody, I was on top of the world. Well, because I never really felt that way. Right. That's the interesting thing, too, because, I mean, first of all, I just want to dial it back to something that I find a little bit, I don't know if the word is creepy or um, just weird, like, 
similarity because what happened to Chris, Chris wound up relapsing because he was on vacation with his girlfriend in Anguilla and he wanted to impress his girlfriend. He didn't do a cartwheel to impress his girlfriend. Which I did. Yes. He did a high karate kick, which injured his lower back, which got him relapsing. And, And Dan's story, tell the story. Oh, man. You know, of all the, like, shit that I did... It's such a weird thing. This is the one thing that is not only the weirdest, but also, like, the one thing that I'm oddly embarrassed about, given all of the shit that I did that I I write about in the book, this is the thing that, like, fucking kills me. I, I did a cartwheel to try to impress this group of, like women you know i was in my mid-20s i was in a lobby of a building the saatchi like ad agency building down in uh, like lower manhattan um no one ever paid attention to me and that was like that was my curse right like i never felt like anyone was paying attention to me and frankly i probably didn't really want people to be paying attention to me but um i kind of liked the idea of being invisible and uh, but I I was like in that moment was like you know what I'm gonna like impress these young ladies. Well, why did you decide to do? I mean, you've I, never done a cartwheel. I've never done You're a cartwheel. You're not acrobatic. I've or, never done one since. But what was the? Do you, can you remember? I you know I I I don't think I can remember. I think I saw like Chris Farley do it on right, SNL right. and was like, All right, that's kind of cool. It. If he can do it, jeez, I can definitely do it. Right. And um, like huge respect for Chris Farley for for landing those cartwheels because I went crashing down on the marble floor of the lobby of this building and like got up, you know, clutching my back and like, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, you know, and. Um, it certainly didn't get me laid. And uh, I ended up literally having back surgery like 10 days later. It's crazy because it is, in a way, it's the defining story of your life. It is absolutely the one thing that changed the course of my life. There's no question about it. And like, and we're going to get to it. Dan, you know, went, you know, I mean, your career is incredible. You know, the trajectory of your professional life was incredible. Um, and something that I'm totally jealous of, and, and it's a conundrum for me because I, I did drugs exactly the opposite way that you did drugs, where like I had a window into success and I was like, all right, give me the heroin I, uh, and I'm going to pretend I can function. Dan actually was the, the archetypical functional drug addict for a long time. I, I was. I mean, I was. I was running details. I guess that's a myth, right? Yeah. I, I, thank you. I was about to. I, I apologize. I was about to correct that. So I was running Details Magazine, which was a, a big national men's magazine. Um, at International, the time. no. No. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, everywhere. Does Canada count? Yeah. Um, why not? <laughs> And uh, I, you know, um, but I, you know, we're never as high functioning as we think we are when we're in it. I was, you know, once the addiction really took hold and I was like off to the races and swallowing handfuls of pills at a time, I I was so not present in that office, you know, I was literally phoning it in. And so for me, from the outside looking in, I must have been, hey, wow, this guy was pretty high functioning. Right. But like in, in reality. I, I was a hot mess. But you did what lots of us wish we could do, which is keep a high-paying job that's well-respected and powerful and get high at the same time. Yes, I was able to check all those boxes. And you got sober while doing the job 
and and you kept the job. I did. That's I got, a very interesting transition in it, itself. It is, and and uh, you know, my all of a sudden I started showing. All of a sudden I was the first one in the office. All of a sudden I was responding to emails. Like all of a sudden I was super present. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a nutty ride. Totally, and I want I want to go back to it because. You know, you do the cartwheel, and you get the surgery, and they have to prescribe you Vicodin, mm-hmm. pain medicine. Yeah. And um, I know for me, um, you know, I never, I never had an accident. I never had an injury. I never felt opiates until I did heroin. And I remember the first time I did heroin, I got fucking so sick. Like, I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I was a total pothead. You know, I, I, right. I was in college, and I did heroin, and I wound up throwing up and throwing up, and I was like, I'm not doing it. Years later, I did it the second time, and I woke up the next morning, and I was like, this is how I want to feel for the rest of my life. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what I got from, from what happened with you, you got the medicine, and the medicine didn't only treat the pain. Oh, man. No, it did not. It 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 felt like a warm embrace it was like nothing i'd ever felt before it was i i write this in the book it was like oh i'm home it's the weirdest fucking thing for all opiate addicts you know and i listened to um i listened to you on dr drew today actually and and drew was talking about um dr drew was talking about um how nobody thought opioids opiates would be a problem it's like, did you, like, he could say, yeah. why? It's from opium. Didn't they know opium was a fucking problem? Right. I don't understand that. Like, that made no sense to me. It makes no sense to me either. And, it, and, uh, and, and quite frankly, you know, I was getting so many of them. I was doctor shopping and I would get l- huge prescriptions. Oh, yeah. From, and, and I mean, like, m- like big quantities, 360 tablets per prescription in, in some cases. And the fact that not only that, like, did they not think it would be a problem, but that they were writing for such huge amounts, uh, I mean, still boggles the mind, actually. Wow. I also just want to get to the, that, the weirdest thing, I think, for you and for me and for so many of us that have had this issue with opiates is like, how can this molecule, this chemical, treat us exactly the way we want it to be treated? You know what I mean? It's like our DNA is predisposed to needing this thing to put you at home or put me at home. It's bizarre. Absolutely. It's like it's like finding like a long lost love in the middle of nowhere. It's just it's it's a connection that's been waiting to happen and it may never happen. It should it's better if it didn't happen. But it's it's a ton better if it didn't happen. But when it did happen, it was it was magnetic. It was absolutely I was drawn to it like I had been waiting for it my entire life. Do you think it, it I know that for me when I got addicted to heroin, I was at this place where I was in the in the beginning of a of a career that could have been a good career and it wasn't a good career um but it gave me guts it gave me bravery it made me not be so self-conscious it made me not care finally I cared so much about everything and opiates gave me a, a way to not care did you find that happening for you? Yeah, I mean, I was so deeply insecure and and um, so sort of longing for for validation 
and opiates delivered that to me. It also kind of takes away the need for it. Well, it takes, anything, it's right? not, not, yes, it takes away the need for it, but it also gave me this false sense of confidence. It was like, oh, okay. I was able to, I, I walked a little taller, you know? I was a little bit more confident. I, I spoke a little bit louder. I felt better about myself. This is the, this is the illusion, though, of them, right? I mean, you know, I now, you know, I'm in, in 12-step meetings and we're, and we're in, uh, in the recovery community, I hear people all the time that are new that say, I don't know that I can do my job without drinking, or I feel like I'm, you know, at my most creative when I have a little bit of a buzz. I was the same way. I felt like, oh my God, this is fueling me and, and the creative juices are flowing thanks to this prescription. I think what it, what it does is it takes away the self-conscious thing. It's it like, I was an overthinker. I was, I mean, unfortunately for all of the anti-Semites in the audience, but Dan is another neurotic Jew on the show. 100%. So 100%. I, I, I believe that it's like, and, and uh, Dr. Drew is like, I don't know what about Ashkenazi Jews know, he, are drawn to. It's like, because we're neurotic and it makes us feel better. Right, I raised why. an eyebrow when he said that to me. I was like, right, really? He okay. said that to me once on the yeah. phone. I couldn't raise the eyebrow. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I believe, and I just came to this conclusion this second, but I believe it's because Ashkenazi Jews suffer from crazy neuroses and opioids subdue the neuroses. I think you're on to something. And, and, and that was certainly the case with me. I was so insecure. I was so neurotic. I, I would hide in my basement doing magic tricks, basically. I love you that. Know? And, and what, what also didn't help in my case is that my brother was like the star of our town. He was the captain of the lacrosse team. He was an A student. He had tons of girlfriends. And a gigantic penis, and, I read. And a, and a big dick. Uh-huh. And so, and I'm just like, oh, I'm like the little brother that's like, hi, you know, pick a card. And, and I mean, as I write in the book, I literally felt like every character ever played by Anthony Michael Hall. I just was this sort of weird misfit, like on the periphery of the cool people, you know? But I'll tell you this, opiates changed that in a second for me. And so did you feel like it was an edge in your career? Do you feel like somehow it jump-started your career in no. some way? No. No. Good. I, I don't at all. Okay. I feel like it jump-started my life. I feel like it it allowed me to... Um, look at myself in the mirror with a little bit of confidence. But it wasn't long after that that I got to a point where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror at right. all. It, it, it happened very quickly. Right. Because it's, 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 that's what the drug does. It's like, you, you, it's like a little Vaseline on the lens until you can't look anymore. And it's like... Totally. Um, I had a lot of the same things happen that you had happen, which was... I mean, I had short-term success and then crazy failure, weight gain, not being able to look at myself. But um, the weight gain, uh, man. That well, was being brutal. a heroin addict who gains weight is yeah. very like it's, <laughs> it's because I would live on fucking cereal and cookies and, totally. and chocolate and ice cream and and oh man, fucking Dan's description of his eating oh, is man. the best. It's I, the best. I, I, I mean, I, I, it's shocking that my diet didn't kill me any more than the No, he talks you know. about buying 
uh, Ben and Jerry's fish food ice cream two at a con- two pints at a time, and he put it in the microwave and like drink it right. Yeah, and then he he would crush the container like it was a beer. I would I would I would eat a little bit maybe with a spoon, and then I would just chug it. And I would crush it like a like a, a frat boy crushing a beer can. It sings the song of my heart. Yeah, that does. Okay. And I'm on this keto diet now for fucking, I don't know. It's it's almost two whole months, you know. And uh, I just found keto ice cream. And oh yeah, it's really Is it awful. No, it's good. Oh wow. Well, considering okay. I haven't had anything sweet <laughs> in so long, it's okay. like uh, last night. It's called peanut blubber, and it's like all fat. With chocolate and no sugar, it's fucking pretty good. All right, all but right. dude, fucking, I don't recommend keto. By the way, unless you want to lose weight and feel weird and then gain it all back, I don't recommend. <laughs> or or it. more. Well, yeah. I'm sure that's coming. I'm yeah. sure that check is in the mail. But I can't wait to re- return to graham crackers and stuff. Oh yeah, you can't miss with graham crackers. Um, so I um, I'm interested to to hear about like what drew you to journalism in the first place. Uh, you know, being able to ask other people questions is a great way of engaging with people without really engaging with people. So it was the same with my like love of doing magic tricks, right? I could, you know, people were looking at me, but they weren't really seeing me. In the same way with journalism, people were talking to me, but they were really just talking about themselves. And so it allowed me to engage with people, but also be invisible, which like is like a it, device to be a to- social. Totally, it was a mask. Um, it was my costume, and it, and it allowed me to sort of, you know, continue to kind of marinate in all of my insecurities, but engage with the world. So, and as your your your, your addiction like started slow, but it became you know it solidified rather quickly. You, I mean, you had a habit before you even went to Paris. You had a small habit. It right? started. Yeah, the seed had been planted, and then I I was asked to go work for a magazine in Paris, and I did that. And listen, you can't get these drugs in Paris, and so that's the best part of th- that Paris. That, that was the roadblock there. You know, it's not like I was like, oh, you know what? Look at this, the baguettes and all of these, you know, poodles. No, I just couldn't. I just couldn't get the drugs there. Did and you find yourself drinking or smoking weed? I was or smoking doing- hash. There was actually smoking a lot of hash there, and 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 uh, and I would like fetishize the way that like these people would roll these amazing joints with hash. You the know, spliffs. They would like melt it into tobacco, and they would like you know use like make little filters, fashion filters from like. The flip top box of a sure. pack of cigarettes. It was like artful, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so I just saw a video of some crippled guy with no fucking hands but two thumbs rolling blunts, like way better than I could have ever done. Was he French? No, he was some <laughs> hip hop kid and some weird rapper. But anyway, please. But um, but when I moved back from Paris to take the job running details, um, I. I dove straight into uh, opiates arms, if you will. And, and it, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't long before I was taking, you know, 15 at a time. I think that's the other thing that's interesting is you didn't have a crazy draw to fashion. Like fashion wasn't your thing. No, but it became your thing. Yeah, almost by default. Because you, know? you could speak the language. You learned the language. I did. And you could figure out what the people wanted. Yes, because I'm a con artist it, like like, right. like every other addict in the, in this world, right? I could 
I mean, my con game was spectacular. So, um, look, I'm also a journalist, so I'm curious by nature, and so I, I would ask you know, questions, I would learn about it, but I am not a fashion guy by any stretch. But you became one. I did. Did I, you always feel like a fraud as the fashion guy, or did you grow comfortable to do it? I, I did it comfortably, for sure, um, and confidently, but I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't pretending. And so I always felt a little bit like a fraud. I always felt like I shouldn't have been in that room with those people. And I always felt that they were thinking, oh, this guy shouldn't be in this room with us. And yet you're the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine. Yes. You have the job that all these motherfuckers in fashion want anyway. Yes, and still you're like, I'm a, well, I think it's this weird cycle of crazy. You're taking all these drugs. You have all this power. You're thinking you're a fraud. And then it goes back to taking the drugs. It's like you didn't get to be comfortable with what you had gotten. No, but, but I, I don't know that I was like even comfortable with myself as a human, let alone as a magazine. Of co- editor, no, of course you weren't. Right? Right, yeah. So, so it, it, just, it was just another mask I put on and I did it and but this is we really are beautiful con artists you know like I would the shtick my act when I would walk into a doctor's office was fucking Oscar worthy right you know and I would you know I would go limping in I would start limping before I, before I even got into the doctor's office, I would get out of a cab or I would come out of the subway. I could be a block away. And I would think, oh, wait a minute. Someone from the office, maybe a nurse or a receptionist or the doctor himself, might be running out to get a cup of coffee. Well, you need full commitment to get uh, this done. So I you need to believe in. the story. I went you are crippled in. once you do it. Yes. So I would hobble down the street. I would stop and lean against like a, like a, a whatever, a, fire hydrant and like like I'd catch my breath and I would walk into the office and there would be all these people literally in pain you know like people accident victims or cancer patients and they would have walkers and wheelchairs and canes and I would I would step around all their stuff and I would like lower myself like like in agony into a chair I was fine the whole time obviously. except one thing you were you were fighting for your life to get the drugs and the pain that you would, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was, was reading the book, when I listened to the book and when I listened to you on drew, it's like, we say we're bullshitting doctors, but we're in the worst pain of all because we need these drugs. It is the darkest place. It's the same. It is. It's, it is, it's, it's a pain that it can, it's, I can't even, it's indescribable. It surpasses the it, physical it, pain that somebody with back pain it, has. It does. It absolutely does. Maybe. But I, I would, but I would sit there and I would watch these real pain patients and I would like kind of hone my act based on the way that they would wince with pain and, and, and all of this, you know? And I, um, so like all of that to say is that like the con ran deep, man. It, 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 it really did. And then also I thought, one a really crazy part of the story was that woman, the the chickpea, the the the, yeah. the, the, the kind of es- the the very super hot escort that uh, would be your sort of girlfriend at night, but she wasn't doing drugs with you. She was smoking pot, right? So, um, right. So I met this this uh, high end call girl. 
Um, and she kind of became my girlfriend because it was like it was like two ships in the night. It was two two cons who needed to feel yeah, safe or listen, something. Like, but she didn't know how bad your addiction was. She didn't know how bad my addiction was. We had a don't ask, don't tell kind of relationship, which I think we both needed. I think we were both broken in in the same way, and and that we would come together at night and we would hang out in my apartment smoking cigarettes and she would get stoned and I would just swallow handfuls of pills and um, no one was asking any questions because when you're an addict, when you're an active addict and people are in your orbit, you start hearing this a lot. Hey, what's wrong with you? Right. Or man, that's not normal. What are you right, doing? Right. And that, like, get leave me alone. She wouldn't ask any of those questions in the same way that I didn't say, hey, what did you do tonight? Because I didn't want to know and I honestly didn't care. I actually, it was a, it was a really, it was actually a really important relationship for as well, you messed mean, up as it was. It gave you some companionship and it gave you some warmth and it had somebody showing up for you. But that's another really th- interesting thing in your story where I will use a word like functional drug addict, even if it's not accurate, because the the drug addicts who fall off the cart, no one's like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like when you're on fucking unemployment and you're not changing your clothes, people kind of know what's wrong (laughs) with you. You're showing up in a suit and running a fucking multi-million dollar industry, and yet you're totally torn. And like your, your love of magic, how like you have to be fully committed to the illusion like how how similar are the two? They they couldn't be more similar. You know, you a it's you know a secret that no one else can know. Right, right, and that's to me like a fucking textbook. How good are you at magic? I was okay. I was okay. I, I I mean I have three kids now, and so I'm constantly showing magic tricks to them. Uh, I'm not bad. All I'm right. not bad. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not bad. All right. But protecting that secret was my priority. So. Um, making sure that no one else knew was my priority. It was almost like maintaining the magician's code as a drug addict. Absolutely. Okay. No one can know this. And and I I fought really hard to make sure that no one knew that I was was an actively you know an addict. See, for me, the allure of being an addict was strong for me. Like I grew, I came up just obsessed with rock and roll and obsessed with like heroic, quote unquote, heroic addicts and artists and all that shit where I wanted to walk in those shoes. Like that was important to me. That, yeah, it was less important to me, you know, and, and, um, and, and in, to some degree, um, it wasn't really important to me at all, you know. And then, like, the irony is that I befriend this rock star, this big rock star, and end up doing drugs with the rock star. I, I, I love these stories, by the way, but I hate that I don't know his name. I'm going to guess it's Steve Vai. Is it Steve Vai? I'm not going to say. It's Steve Vai, isn't it? I'm not going to say. Is it, but is, is it Eddie Van Halen? I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to say. Is it CC DeVille? Who's the guitar player from Poison? But... But I spent a lot of time in this, like, with Did this... Did he tell you not to say? With this... You know, I try... I'm just playing, by the way. I know you are. But I, I wanted to protect... You know, listen, it's not for me to out of other course, people of as, as, uh, as addicts, as you, as, uh, as I'm trying you know, to do right now. As is it Corey Feldman? Um, but, uh, but I spent a lot of time, you know, with this rock star, and 
it was a, it's a fascinating world to see from the inside. This was an aging rock. This was someone whose like glory days were behind him. He was like an eighties rock star and you started hanging out with him in the mid nineties. Correct. And started doing drugs with him and ended up having his limo driver start to like be my dealer because the, the, I went one night. I was out in L.A. The worst story in the whole book. Unbelievable story. It's such a, like, it's so, I mean, we, it's, we can laugh about it, but it's like it was a dark, dark place for me. Running out, when you're taking as many pills as I was taking, running out is your fucking nightmare. So when you run out, you know, it, it, so you do whatever you can not to run out. But I was taking a pretty high quantity of pills, and, and maintaining a supply became a full-time job for me. Of course. And and so I was out in L.A. and I was hosting a party. The magazine was hosting a party and, and I was hosting a party for whatever the fuck it was. I don't even remember. And um, I met the rock star and, um, and the rock star knew immediately that I was an I addict. love that. And this is the thing, and I write this in the book, it's like fucking vampires. They, they can tell when someone else isn't human. He knew within a minute that I was also an addict. Just there's, by, there's gaydar, and there's judar, and there's this. They're to- totally, 100%. He just knew it. And, um, I love that. I, I love that. Because that's what puts us all together. It, it is. But it is. Please continue. So he he uh, was like, hey, and I would always complain about back pain because I that was my thing, and I had had back surgery, and so it was like a perfect sort of like excuse for me, you know, to be a little absent or to be swallowing a pill. Oh, my back's bothering me. Whatever it was, and he said, oh, I have something that might help your back. And um, we left the Chateau Marmont. It's such a like a douchey LA story. It's right? a great LA story. We, we, Led Zeppelin uh, raped a woman with a fish at the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> You, know, you can't touch that, no. you know? So we get into the back of a limo, and he pulls out this little container and, and cuts a line of crushed up oxy. I was taking the pills. I was never snorting them. I had never snorted them until that moment. And, and uh, I snorted a line of this. And, and, uh, but that day, I had, I had run out of pills. I remember also in the story that you had decided you were going to try heroin exactly. before that happened. Yes. So I was like, fuck this. It's, what, what, explain that to me. I just thought it might it'd be easier to get heroin. It is. I know. It's so much and easier. And so I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do heroin. But I also thought, like, Jewish kids from the suburbs of Baltimore don't do heroin. I can't do heroin, right. you know? And, like, I was like, heroin's a drug, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'm taking pills. Right. You know, like, I have a prescription for this. I'm like, what, like whatever bullshit I was trying to convince myself. Uh-huh. And that day, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get heroin. And I'm like, I'm going to just fucking try it. So the rock star gives me a line of this stuff in the back of the limo. And I say to him, hey, can I, um, can I take your car somewhere after this? He's like, yeah, yeah. So Billy was the driver. He goes, Billy, drop me at home and then just take Dan wherever he wants to go. So, you know, we drop the rock star behind this like gated tall hedges, like crazy ass house. And, and Billy's like, where do you want to go? And I'm like, Hey, I'm like, do you know Skid Row? And he's like, the band? And I'm like, no. I bet he did know Skid Row. I'm like, no, dude. <laughs> like Skid fucking Row, you know? And I, I created this bullshit story. I'm like, well, I'm the editor of a magazine. We're doing a story on like places where people get drugs in LA and celebrities doing drugs. And he's like, I got a spot for you. And he takes me to this place. 
And uh, I get out of the car, and he's like, "Was it east of St. Julian or west of St. Julian?" I have no idea where it was. Okay, I have absolutely no idea. Because I had where a terrible was. relapse on Skid Row. I had the opposite story, but keep going. So I, I, and by the way, I'm dressed like a schmuck, right? I was wearing a pair of like khakis, like you, you like I would, like now I want to like kick my own ass. <laughs> like I had like a button down tucked in. I was wearing a pair of like moccasins, and, like suede moccasins. You know, you just doubted yourself in the story. You doubt. I, I mean, didn't own it. I yeah, totally didn't yeah. own it. So I get out of the car. We get out. I get out of the limo, and the driver's like, you know, "This guy Billy's like, are you sure you want to do this, dude?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll be right back." And I saw this guy on riding a bike. It's like dark. It's like it felt like the middle of the night. It's like after midnight, easily. And he's like, "I go walk down the street," and this guy's like, "Hey, man, what's up?" Now I had never bought heroin before. I had no idea what to say. So I thought, all right, I need to, and I and I look like a vacationing aristocrat. So you I'm, were a vacationing I, so aristocrat. I, I'm like, all right, I need to like show some street cred here. So I say, hey man, I'm looking for some H. Now, uh, uh, you've done. Is that what people say? Well, what I say um, is my my line. Whenever I would get sick and show up someplace where I didn't know anybody, I would do. I would say, I don't want to freak you out. But you know where I can get some heroin. Yeah, I probably, I probably <laughs> I just should. played in my total Jewish neurosis. Right. Listen, I'm sick. I need help. Get me some heroin, please. And when I, I was on Skid Row, probably very close to where you were, and I was sober, and I and I, I was smoking meth, and I was a mess, and I all I wanted was to get some fucking heroin. And I was working on a film production, and I don't mean to interrupt your story. Yeah, no, Some no, no. homeless dude comes up to me and he goes, "Can you give me a cigarette?" I was like, "I'll give you two if you could tell me where I could get some heroin." <laughs> totally. And he goes, "Yeah, it's across the street. Just ask for Charlie." Because everybody on those streets, this well, is the craziest part. My dad could cop dope on Skid Row. Okay, I could not. I know. And so That's my I say, favorite story. I say, "Hey, can I? You know, where, you know, can I get some? Do you know where I can get some H?" Yeah. And he just looked me up and down. He's like. And he just yelled, grenade! And I was like, what the, what? And all of a sudden, this, this... Cripple. This dude with one leg. Oh, poor uh, grenade. Like, on crutches, comes, like, cruising up. He was jacked, man. Right. Uh-huh. Like, all upper body. This is right. all this guy had. Yeah, like, yeah, he yeah. was, like, he was, like, a tank. Uh-huh. And he, he starts coming up. He's like, what do you want? And immediately, I was like knocked back on my heels. I was like, uh, "This isn't this isn't good." I'm looking for you. Some know eight. he had the fire a hundred percent, but he either thought I was a cop. What did you say? Or a pussy, or both? What did you say? I'm, like, I'm looking for some age. And Grenade didn't like that. He was like, get the fuck out of here. Get your bitch ass out of here. And he started chasing me. A one-legged drug dealer started chasing me down the block. And let me tell you something. He was faster than I was. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm running, and I, I'm, such a, like, I'm such a pussy. I, like, I'm crying at this point. I'm so scared. And it's scary. And it's it, really it, scary It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And he swings at me with his crotch, and he whacks my leg. And if it weren't for the limo driver who was waiting on the corner, who was like, hey. And, like, Grenade stopped and was like, get the fuck out of here. And I get in the back of the car, and Billy's like, dude, what's up? I'm like, just take me to my hotel, please. He's like, what are you looking for? I'm like, just please take me to my hotel. He's like, no, no, no. What are you looking for? I'm like, I'm looking for Roxy Codone. You didn't want to ask Billy for the heroin. No, you were like, Fuck no. It. I mean, this I went with I went with my top menu right, option. Right, right, if he was right. asking me, right, and he's like, I can get that for you. And and for years, several years after that night, 
Billy would get me pills and I would go to LA all the time, easily once a month. And the rock star and I would order pills from Billy and, um, uh, I would pay for them because the rock star conveniently couldn't didn't have access to cash. Was rich as shit, but but was he actually rich as shit? Yes. Though? Yeah. Did he yeah, ever yeah. pay you back? No, he offered to give me memorabilia. But you didn't take any. He offered to give me stuff. I just never got around to, to doing it. You know, like you it should was just, fucking hit him up. I, I I probably should. You shouldn't. You should. But uh, but but he 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 was. People were watching him like a hawk. His accountant, ex-wives, because they know, knew he was a drug. addict. They knew that he was a drug addict, and they and they thought that he was in recovery, but he was lying to everyone. So the first couple times we split it, um, he paid for half, and I paid for half, and we would split the pills. But we wanted different things, which was a little annoying. They're pretty similar, though. Well, right? they are, but he wanted eighty milligram oxycontin, and I wanted fifteen milligram roxycodone. Why? What's the? D- I, I never did uh, either, really. I, you know what? I mean, it's I don't even know if you know there's probably not a ton of difference if you're crushing them which he was i was swallowing the pills um but eventually he was like hey man listen can you can you carry this for me i'm like dude this is easily like a 10 million dollar house like you know what the fuck and you never turned into snorting it never happened you always i only only when i was with the rock star was i snorting but you never did see i think this is also really interesting the idea of the functional drug addict, and I only use that word in quotes, not reality. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you didn't want to really get heroin. You didn't want to snort. I did not. Because all of those things really progressed well, you. And, the, and, the, and they, would, they would more clearly define me as an addict, even though I was a gigantic, a massive addict. And I started to know it, certainly. Doing things like that. This is in my. This is in my addict's brain. Well, it right? slows it down, though. It slows that's it down, how but you manage. No difference between no. any of this shit. You, you know? get sick. You get desperate. You uh, lie, totally. and your behavior totally. changes. It doesn't make a difference if I was doing heroin or taking these pills. No. The behavior is identical. You would have probably not gotten fifteen years out of the job if you were taking heroin. That's, I, I, that's I, I know. You know. I, you know it, that's I, the difference. I absolutely wouldn't have. But uh, but I. But still, I would sort of. Think to myself, all right, you're not totally like circling the drain here. It's you know? just a nice, much longer circumference around it for a little while until totally. again you get to the same place then, that I did, that yeah. everybody gets. Yeah. Um, and did you ever talk to the rock star guy again? Did you ever give him a heads up? You're in the book, but I called you the rock star. I'm sure he listens to Dopey. Yes, uh, I, I did. Uh, and any, anyone that I mentioned in, in the book, uh, and I changed all the names. I mean, well, most of the names. There are some people like Mike Tyson's name I didn't change because Mike Tyson's fucking Mike Tyson, and and he's in my story. There's too much uh, cachet to change Mike. You, want, yeah. you don't want to turn him into a Vander Holyfield. Or no, something. and it's not like I was doing drugs with him, you know. But um, but I was high as shit around him. But I let I gave people a heads up, including the including the rock star. And did he did he say I'm glad you're doing good, or did he say anything like that? Yeah, he's like, man, I'm glad you're doing well, man. Let's try to get together. I'd love to meet your kids. He's I'm like, like you know what, dude? Listen, it was we had a fun ride, but I'm good. And then you, another thing that we totally have in common is uh, knocking up our women while using. Oh man, it it uh, yeah, dude. I, I yeah, but here's the thing: like, you know, we did IVF. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't. Wow, you know. So like, and this is what I put my my now ex wife through, but, but my wife at the time, like, like, 
the night before we went to do our first IVF treatment, our first attempt at IVF, I was like, you know what? I'm done. And I mean, of course, how many times have you said this is my last high? You know, no, I love how you describe the different last highs and oh man, it, it's I, it's so real. I mean, I, I mean, I I said I was done. You know, uh, more times, times than I can ever possibly countless remember. Times. And yeah, I mean, I I describe lots of different highs, and this would be the this is the last time I'm getting high high. And I would had a lot of this is the last time I'm getting high highs. And one of them was the night before we went into IVF. I was living in a, a, a high rise in, in New York City. And you have like trash shoots, right? Where like you drop your trash and it go, all goes, goes down the whole length sure. of the building. And uh, I dropped the pills down there. You Not, threw it down the garbage. I threw it down the garbage chute. I love a, a this. Bottle of, a bottle of um, probably, you know, Roxycodone. And not like an hour later, I was downstairs in the lobby. I was like, oh, man, I accidentally threw my medicine out. And uh, the guy was like, all right, I'll get the building porter. But uh, And I went down into like this sub-basement and into this like gigantic container the size of like a, like a fucking car. And he's like, look, dude, you want to go in there and look for it? You can. And I was standing in this thing in a pair of pajama pants and a T-shirt with this, like, union dude in his, like, work clothes just standing there looking at me with his mouth open. And I'm going through, like, rotting produce and fucking diapers. Editor-in-chief of details. Editor-in-chief of details. My apartment, 61 floors up, three-bedroom apartment. Right. And I am... Like weeding through people's shit, just desperate to find the bottle that you threw to away. To find on the purpose. bottle that I threw away, not more than an hour or two earlier, because I was turning over a new leaf and getting clean. Well, that's the other thing. The amount and I of, found them, by the way, and it must have been the best feeling you ever oh, had. Oh man! You also describe like, that really well when you go into an old suit and oh, you find drugs. It's like fucking hitting the lottery. It is. It is like hitting the lottery. Like like finding like. One last M&M in that crumpled package you're about to throw out. It is like euphoria. You know, I got clean and uh, I was cleaning the house and I found all sorts of drugs. And it's the opposite. It was like... Well, I mean, that really tests you too, doesn't it? I was just like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? I, I, and I threw it all away. Um, because I had, I had already, I was done. You know what I mean? Like I was actually done. Did you ever find everything, anything after you were done? You know what? Actually just a couple of years ago. So I'm sober for 12 years, but uh-huh. a couple of years ago, um, they were like having some work done in the house and, um, I went into a bathroom and this was right after Halloween and I saw something yellow on the white, like bath mat in the bathroom and the guy had been working on the shower and I looked at it and I thought it was a Pez for a second and I picked it up and it was a Percocet. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? It was his. It was his. And I took it and I threw it in the toilet and I flushed it. And, uh, you know, called my sponsor and was like, hey, just FYI, this happened. Crazy, uh, it was right? good, you know, but like it's you have a moment there, you know, and I didn't think hey, I'm going to take this at all. I actually felt really proud of myself for being like eh, and dropping it in the toilet. But like, I don't want that shit in my house. A and B, I have kids. Oh, yeah. You know, like, I don't, you know, I had to, like, call the dude and be like, hey, man, listen, you know, like, whatever you got going on, if you're in pain, you're dealing with something, so your business, not mine. But do me a favor, please don't bring any... Did you um, tell him that? Yeah, 100%. What did he say? 
oh yeah man i'm sorry about that i just had my knee worked on like look dude totally your business i don't even need to hear an explanation but just please do me a favor i'm a drug addict and Is i that what you said? yeah 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. and i'm a father of three kids right so i just don't need that to happen in my house right crazy yeah and um the other thing that I find to be interesting is like there's such a weird duality between the amount of work it takes to maintain doctor shopping. You know what I mean? Like versus oh. it's like for me, like I remember I, I went to a, I, I bought two hundred dollars worth of heroin. I went to go buy something. I lost the heroin. Like oh. something and then I just called the guy up and I bought more heroin. You have to go to fucking hell and back to get these pills. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? It's so much work, but it's also it kept you in your field. At what point what was the final thing for you that was like, I can't do it anymore? Like when did you know it, it couldn't go on? I knew it couldn't go on long before it ended. Right. Okay. But was there a final straw situation? Yeah. I mean, my wife caught on and threw me out. She How did was, she catch She was you? six months. Uh, receipts from pharmacies. The fucking pharmacies. I should have paid cash. But I, I, you know, she saw credit card receipts and she just knew. And of course, I was like, what are you talking about? You know, you try to make them feel like they're crazy, right? Like you gaslight the fuck out of anyone that's even remotely on to you. I think this is the first time I've ever understood what gaslight means. So thank you. But yeah, no, my pleasure. And so, you know, you try to be like, what are you talking about? You know, and then, and then I would get offended, you know, like I had like a, um, an office manager in a doctor's office, like call me out on it. And I like was, you know, instead of being like, oh my God, you're so right. I need help. I was like, how dare you suggest, you know, I'm appalled. I'm in pain, you know? Right. And I like went into this like whole like stupid fucking monologue about like, you know, like shame on you for suggesting blah, blah, blah. Um, my, my then wife was pregnant. Um, she, and she threw me out. You know, but and then I, it was like I'm either going to do this or I'm going to not. Hold on for one yeah. second. So forgive me, everybody. We're having a little a little pseudo technical difficulty where I actually have two people coming to my dad's house. So the next guest might be close, but I didn't mean to cut you off. We're at a, a very important moment in the story. Your wife finds out. Yeah, yeah, discovery. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And she absolutely saved my life by saying, get your shit together. And um, I did. I went down to Baltimore to where I, my childhood home and I like detoxed in my mom's house with her just kind of like nursing me. And I went to my first 12-step meeting and, and um, came back to New York two weeks later and took a handful of pills the second I got back. And And... How long did relapses go on? How long did, did that circle, where the circle around the drain gets so much shorter, how long did that go? It went on for a day. That and that was it. it? That was it, yeah. That and, then, it. and then you got clean in your mother's house. I got clean in my mother's house. I was down there for two weeks, sober, came back to New York. That would have made me insane. Well, listen, dude, doing anything with a Jewish mother can make you insane. Let's be honest. You must have an amazing relationship my, with your mother. I, I, I absolutely do. But, but listen, I mean, you know, it, it's, it can be a lot sober. So, um, uh, but my mom was awesome. My whole family, you know, kind of rallied, you know, and, and, and kind I of, never could have done that. I just, their voices, 
my parents' voices if I'm kicking opiates, I would fucking, I'd kill my, I, I, my self-hatred is activated by the sound of my parents' voices. I was so ready. I was so desperate. I, I was so done that, that I was just grateful to, to actually be there. And, um, but this is how powerful this shit is, right? And we know this, and this is why, this is how it gets us. I went back to New York and I got a prescription that same day. I got off of a train, literally, from my mom's house in Baltimore to sober for two weeks. My first 12-step meeting, like, you know, starting to begin to take some accountability for the fucking disaster that I created out of my life. And I come back to New York and I take a handful of pills. It, like, like that, without even thinking about it. It wasn't until the next morning I was like, whoa, 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 like, wait a minute, this isn't the path that I want to be on anymore. And I just, I dove into recovery, you know, like headfirst. Now, as the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine, you're bumping up with celebrity and kings and queens and leaders of the free world. What was that like when you're, when you're getting all fucked up all the time? Uh, you know, I didn't really care, you know, I mean, that's the thing. Like I had access to all of these amazing cultural figures and in the end, like all I cared about were, was pills. It's all I cared about. So it was interesting. I could do that. Cause again, I was a con artist, you know? And so I could, I could, uh, I could do that pretty well actually. And like kind of schmooze with these people, but it was just so not, something I was interested in. I always just, all I cared about were the pills, getting them, taking them, getting more. That was it. Did anybody, did anybody of note ever detect it? Did they ever smell, just smell it on you? Like, did anybody like of note ever say anything weird or was it just the what's wrong with you? It was mainly the what's wrong with you. I was once taking a, a, a Vicodin in uh, the, the beauty of taking pills is that you can do it anywhere, you know, because like everyone, oh, I'm taking my vitamins or oh, I have a headache or whatever it is. So I, you know, but I would generally try to like sneak away and, and take them. Um, and I got busted by a fashion designer once who was like, hey, what are you doing? Right. And I'm like, oh, I am taking a Tylenol. And he was like, okay, sure you are. And when you finally found recovery, were you feeling like you were so desperate that you needed it? Or were you like, did it tap into the thing in you that you wanted to be? Like, like how did it appeal to you? Like, what was attractive about it? I was so desperate and I was so, I had been trying to stop for so long on my own. So I would start and stop and start and stop and start and stop because I was doing it by myself, which incidentally I don't recommend doing. And I think it's so I, but I didn't have the balls to, to raise my hand and say, Hey, I'm an addict and I need help. And I think that's an incredibly courageous thing to do. But I think the stigma associated with, with, with addiction makes it really hard to do that. And or it certainly did then. And I, you know, and so I, I just didn't have the courage to be like, Hey, I'm ready to stop. Someone help me stop. So I would stop on my own or be like, this is the last time I'm getting high. And I would swallow a bunch of pills and I would start all over again the following morning. How often did that happen? That happened pretty often, Like, how actually. long was that period? 
there were a couple years okay. of of me um, using getting uh, like buprenorphine injections and and trying to sort of stop. And I would stop for like three days, and then I would dive back in and go for a couple weeks, and then I would stop again and be like, "This is it, I'm done." And I would weep and I would, you know, uh, tell myself like, uh, "I'm done," you know, "I've made it out alive," and I would just jump right back in. And your your family hung in with you though. My family didn't know. But I mean, after it all came out, after it all came out, after it all came out, I got sober. There was no more stops. There, there was stars. there was once there was one this one after I got back from Baltimore, I took a bunch of pills and that was it. That was it. And then but then recovery set in and then recovery set in. And you yeah. became like one of one of this cult that we belong to, and it's such a it's such a good cult to be a part of. And uh, yeah, man, I I dove right into the recovery community, and it's like fucking changed my life, you know. And and um, uh, you know, I'm I'm grateful in ways that I can't even articulate. Of course, I mean it's amazing, and uh, and the book I love. And uh, what do you want to do? What's the plan? What do you want to do next? That's an awesome question, man. I, you know, I want to listen. I want to help. You know, um, destigmatize addiction. I, I want to, you know, help um, get people to understand. You know, that this isn't a moral failure. That like, if you're out there swallowing tons of pills or doing drugs, you're not some kind of fuck up. That well, is, you're probably a fuck up. Come you're on. maybe a little Come bit on. of a fuck up, but <laughs> but this is a disease. Oh. Um, and then I'm a media guy. I'm a journalist, you know. So I, you know, I want to jump back in. I also want to write another book. So you, you know? want you want to jump back into media and journalism. You don't want to become an illusionist. I, you know, I, I Part think of my, my chops are a little rusty, but the kid in me absolutely would love that. So you'd like to do more magazine stuff and stuff like I'd that? I'd like to do more stuff in media. I think magazines are slowly fading out. Um, What's but, the dream job? Man, you know, I mean, the dream dream would just be to continue writing books and... and um, talking about addiction and recovery, fatherhood's incredibly important to me. It really changed my life. I think I was given a second chance so I could be a dad. Actually, I got sober 92 days before my son was born. So his birth is essentially like my rebirth. It sounds like a little fucking hokey. I no, know, that's but, great. but it's been like the ultimate game changer for me. Uh, so write more, talk more. Um, but you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a media guy. Like I like storytelling. This is a form of storytelling, right? Like this is like an incredible form of storytelling. So something with storytelling. Well, I think that's awesome. I, I, you know, when my, when my girlfriend at the time got pregnant, I wanted to never do drugs again, but I, I kept doing drugs for, for years but um, I know that I never would have gotten clean without fatherhood. So it's not for everybody. Obviously, there's a ton of dads who, who get high. And I got high as a dad for a long time. But, I, but I, I mean, I imagine writing a book, right? I imagine writing a book, and I imagine having the dedication to be probably for my first daughter. But then I'd have to put my second daughter and Linda, probably, right? Yeah. You didn't have a dedication. I did. I did. Mine says dedication coming. Oh, well, you had an early draft. Okay. You had an early version. Okay. So, so my, uh, my book is dedicated to my three kids because fatherhood was such a game changer for me. And that's not to suggest that people that want to stop drugs should just go out and start getting You don't think pregnant. so? You don't recommend no. that? Just start, go, have tons of kids. I was ready, you know, and it just so happened that it coincided with the birth of my oldest son. And, um, and it just was a game changer for me. All right. The only, the, I, I really love having you on. 
I think it's terrible that you couldn't cop dope on Skid Row. I know. But uh, it's, it's embarrassing. But uh, I totally recommend you guys get Dan Paris's book, As Needed for Pain. It is wonderful. And I will have Dan on again sometime because Dan is a New Yorker. Let's do it. I love that. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. So it's, a, it's an exciting, dopey week. <laughs> it's a very exciting, dopey week because... Dan Paris came in to talk about his crazy addiction memoir, fucking Details Magazine, 15 years. And dopey family, fucking dopey family, Alexis Haynes in New York. She doesn't write me or say, I'm in New York. I want to come by. I have to see her on Instagram on some bougie fucking talk show. But then I hit her up and she's like, I want to come by. So Alexis Haynes. I feel like I'm getting the full fucking dopey experience right now. You are getting Which I'm really, I really love it. Like in the apartment, in the dad's apartment, in the kitchen. Interpret for the fans. It's great. I mean, there's a McDonald's next door. We made sure to hit that up right before we walked in, get some fries in us, you know, a great Diet Coke. That's not all she got. No. She bought a filet of fish and she refused to I eat it. I can't eat it. No, can't get behind it. Um, but Dave saved that in the fridge for his dad when he gets my home. dad. My dad <laughs> won't say filet of fish. He says, I like to get a nice fish sandwich. Fish sandwich. Yeah. Yes. So he'll be excited. Yes. Lots of old Jews next door at the McDonald's. <laughs> all around us. There's old Jews everywhere. No, but I'm, I'm living for it. Chelsea's a cool, like, Hood over here, and you're on some massive book tour. Alexis well, just wrote a book, Recovering from Reality. Yeah, go buy it. Buy do the me book. A, do me a solid. <laughs> no, I did. I wrote a book, and uh, you know, it really, I really feel official right now. But I also feel like I'm kind of an imposter because I'm like, like, come on, it's a book. It's like a big deal. I think and it's a big deal. Who wants to really read it? But I guess a lot of people do because it's been doing well, and I'm grateful. And the gist of the book is how it's a, it's a very serious well, book. Oh, it's a very serious book. Um, but it basically just talks about how early childhood trauma, specifically childhood sexual abuse, you know, turns into addiction later on in life. And so, is that what, that's what your story is? That's my story. Yeah, it's a, it's a memoir, which is crazy because I'm 28 years old, but I've lived so much life in this last 28 years. If you guys haven't heard me on this podcast before... I got sober at 19, twice convicted felon, a part of the infamous bling ring. They made a movie about me. Where I love Watson. the way you recap. Yeah. This is good. And Watson played me, and I had a reality show back in the mid-2000, I mean 2010s, on E! called Pretty Wild. So I had a very public meltdown, um, and thankfully I was shown some grace by a judge who helped me get sober. And the rest is fucking history. And it was after that that you met Evan. I met Evan when I was in rehab and we were friends for a couple of months. And then near the end of my treatment, we started really casually dating. Um, does everyone know who Evan is? No, Evan. Well, every <laughs> ad I talk about Aloe. It's Aloe House. Aloe House and is Evan our is treatment Evan. center. And Evan is the Evan... Um, Evan is my Evan. He's my husband. We've been married for eight years. We have two kids, seven and three, almost seven and three. Um, my and little Evan babies. is a kind man, and he's, he's a mensch. Kind. If you have a problem, you call up Evan. Evan listens. He listens. He's kind. He's Canadian, though, right? He's Canadian. Yes. And, and it's almost like he's too kind, and as a result, he gets sucked into like just listening all the time. I'm like, you have to set up boundaries, too, you know, like where you can. can create some um, personal time for yourself in your life because he really, he throws himself into this work and he works 
I say really like 5 a.m. the second he wakes up until like 1030 at night. And now that I'm back to work, now that I have my own podcast and I'm doing this uh, work, I'm doing the same. And it's it's a hard thing to find that balance. Yeah. You know, my my beautiful partner is not working and she's killing herself not working. Ooh, you know, it's that's like a hard thing. I there are many a day I miss being a stay at home mom. I was just saying before we started that last week I saw my kids for a total of five hours and it's just not enough. Like, I miss my kids. I sometimes hate the hustle, but I'm on a mission and it's paid off. We were just talking about how successful the book's been and the podcast and all this stuff. And it's like, I wouldn't have it any other way. And now I started doing these amazing like online courses and just the feedback I'm getting from people is incredible. And so I'm... I, like I said, I wouldn't do it any other way, but it's hard. It's hard to find that balance for sure. Well, don't you find that young women who have had sexual trauma, sexual abuse, they can come to you? Oh yeah, I mean, I. But every it's crazy. Like because of the pop culture thing, I have a really large gay fan base. Yeah, and so and um, addiction is pretty prevalent in the LGBTQIA community. And as somebody who's bisexual, like I understand their issues and the challenges of coming out. That's the worst part about recording at my dad's house. He's got... Hang up. He's going to call right back because it's my dad's friend, Richard. And my dad's friend, Richard, is a trip. Is he? Yes. He's Um, just persistent. He's going to call right back. But Dopey <laughs> has become incredibly gay. We had like four incredibly gay episodes in a row. I fucking love that. Yeah. The gays need more representation in this community, I really think. And so um, as somebody who's walked through that experience, so, I, you know, yes, I get a lot of people who have overcome or who are still trying to overcome early childhood sexual abuse or rape later on in life or sexual domestic violence. Um, but I also get, you know, the 18-year-old girl who's addicted to meth in Ohio and the 29-year-old gay guy who lives in West Hollywood and the mom of four who lives in Nebraska. So it's really this thing, we know addiction does not discriminate. And I, I'm just, ha- I'm happy. I live in my DMs now. I mean, people are just messaging me every single day saying that they relate to my story and that they're grateful that I'm doing this work. So I just stick with it. I know what you mean. And for me, like a lot of people hit me up all of a sudden, like I I feel like I'm hearing from a lot more people lately and I love feeling busy and I love just being able to offer a nice word. Like that's it. You know, I can't get more invested than that because like I don't want to be more invested than that. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't mean that in in the bad way. I mean that in the good way because how much I mean like how much can you communicate with the with the fans I communicate a lot I, I live in my DMs uh, it's absurd I have to set some boundaries and I have to get out of my DMs if you DM me um, and it's something really serious I, to every person that goes oh I love your hair or I love your purse or, or whatever I cannot respond to every single message that I get like that but to the people I do skim through it I make sure like if you're dealing with a crisis or you have a child who's addicted or you have a parent who's addicted or you're dealing with you know, how did you overcome X, Y, and Z? I'm so transparent. I do lives on Instagram all the time where people ask me questions I do live call and show Q&A's on my podcast I'm talking to people all the time. I mean, we cannot 
stand by any longer. If the government is not going to step in and help us when we know in the last decade that half a fucking million people died from this shit in the last decade. But what's anybody going to do? do I could think of a number of things. Like, what can somebody Uh, do? All right, so... Starting with uh, criminal justice reform, okay. ending for-profit prison industries okay, I'm with, would be okay, great. Okay, I support those things. Um, increasing uh, spending in schools um, to okay. make sure that I'm children are getting educated in safe places. Right, where this they could actually reduce to, and make things better. Okay, to, I'm with you. you know, counselors uh-huh. to three healthy meals a day, um, access to health care so people can get into treatment when they need to. That sounds good. Uh, all of these things are policy issues and until the government really steps up and does its job I mean the solution to addiction isn't criminalization the solution you don't think all the addicts should just get locked up and murdered no No. what's the solution the solution to well I believe that addiction stems from trauma Um, but not always there's not always but that's very rare I would say it's more rare I will say this in our treatment center where we have treated thousands of thousands of patients at this point 99.9% of them have had trauma and I would say 90% of them have been sexually abused in childhood interesting 90% 90% See, my... Men and boys and girls. My partner is... Well, it's a whole other story. I, I don't want to tell the story because my... Okay, I'll tell the story. My, <laughs> Give it to us. I, I had a very close family friend yeah. who, it turned out, he was a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Okay? I had to stay in his apartment and I found... And he was an educator. And I mm-hmm. found, like, books about pedophilia in his apartment and all this stuff. And my wife, Linda, is like convinced that I was sexually abused as a child. Mm-hmm. If that's true, wouldn't I remember it? No. And I'll tell you why. So you're, you're convinced that this dude sexually molested me too I'm, and that's why I'm an addict. I'm not at all convinced that that's the reason that you're an addict. I will say this, especially for children, um, our brains protect ourselves when we're in a lot of stress. So our limbic system starts to fire off and we move into our amygdala, which is our fight or flight response. And our brain goes, do I freeze or do I fight? And so for children, they usually freeze because they don't know how to fight. And we believe, and sometimes there's grooming involved. So for my abuser, when I was a child, there was lots of grooming involved. Um, and... So what happened was I they build the trust with you and then they sexually abuse you, which is still a traumatic experience, but our brain actually blocks out the trauma in order to protect ourselves. So it but wasn't what about until, total no recollection whatsoever? Zero. <clears throat> uh, I'm not saying that you were sexually abused. Thank you. I feel, I feel vindicated. I'm saying that it is um, not uncommon to not remember your abuse. And then how can somebody who did have trauma, I had other traumas, but mm-hmm. how does anybody who has had trauma deal with trauma? How do you unpack trauma? I think that that's a case-by-case basis. And that this is why I'll always, always, always advocate for long-term treatment. Um, because for the most part, in the first 30 days of rehab, most people, insurance, that will cover them for 30, 60, maybe 90 days. Uh, but what's happening in that first 30 or 60 days is really stabilization. There's no desire or will to really dive into the deep traumatic work. I think we're too fragile. I don't think we're necessarily ready 
to start addressing things like I saw my dad choke my mother up against the wall in the kitchen when I was five. I, you know what I mean? Like I was being as sexually abused by my camp counselor when I was nine. Um, the, you know, the Terrible. horror stories. I mean, and even there's trauma with a big T and then trauma with a little T. And um, like my sister bullied me a lot, which can be traumatizing because here's the thing. There's no... I hope my sister's gen- not listening because I will not hear the end of it. There's no addiction gene. Addiction is, what, from what we understand so far, it's, and there needs to be more funding that goes into this too. That's another thing the government could be doing is allocating funds to, to um, looking into addiction. But there's a set of epigenetics some people are more sensitive to others some people to certain things some people are less resilient what's interesting is this we have done studies Please tell me we've had audio this whole time, Dave. I don't know how you can doubt me. You sound perfect. Do you want to wear the headphones? No, no, I don't want to wear the headphones. But you put Alexis them on and it is fucking, fucking scared Alexis me. is fucking convinced that the the two problems with dopey. I don't mean to interrupt this. Not incre- problems. No, let's just deal with reality here. Not We're going to recover from your this reality. <laughs> Alexis's problem with dopey number one is the audio is not good enough. Well. Look at it. Look at it in its splendor. <laughs> and number two, she doesn't like the theme song. No. Now you're scared true. you're going to alienate the dopamine. What nation. I said to Dave over here was that if he wants to monetize off the podcast, he puts a lot of heart and soul into this Lots podcast. Lots of heart and soul. So much heart and soul. And I appreciate all of the work that he's done. I mean, honestly, like... You and I, like, there's very few that are out here still after so many episodes of doing this thing because it's a lot of work. No right? shit. Okay. Fuck it. So if you, so you deserve to de, to be wealthy, wealthy yes. off of this podcast to make money. Yes. I mean, I know the numbers you get; they're similar to the numbers I get, and I'm making money off my podcast, and you should be too. But I'm not so glamorous and, and sexy and young like you are. There's I'm old and gray, crusty. Doesn't matter. Taylor's like frowning over no, here. No, she's not. Um, all I'm saying is, if you want to monetize off the podcast, you got to clean up your audio and and and, and your intro. I also the thing the thing that uh, Alexa said when she came up is she's like it's a good thing we're friends because I never would have come up in this building. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't go into weird to buildings I don't know into people's homes and record podcasts if I don't know them. You know what I mean? Like I don't just like walk into people's apartments. I'm not trying to get like sex trafficked over here. You know what I mean? No, I hear you. That would be yeah, a whole no. You Taylor, can't, what do you want to say? Taylor can't input. She doesn't have a mic. What Shut did she up. say? What was she going to say? No, 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 no. I'm all yes, it's true. I'm Taylor not used says, to New York and New York buildings, and you've got to go in through all these codes, and it buzzes you in, and then. What do you think? I live in the fucking suburbs. What do you think? What do I know? This is where I grew up. It's great. This uh, New York is amazing. I mean, we've had shit weather since I've been here, but that's okay. This is actually good weather for February. Are you kidding me? It's supposed to be like subarctic. It's like fifty degrees. How is this shit weather? No, it's just like it's windy. It's cold. It was raining yesterday. The fog was so low you couldn't see the tops of buildings, and I was like feeling a little claustrophobic. Wow, you complain like a New Yorker though. You do a good job. (laughs) New York is great. No, New York is great. 
I love it here. I'll never leave California, I don't think. You're a California girl. I am. Born and raised. I'm a valley girl through and through if you don't like it. My sister, when we grew up, had a poster on her wall of valley girls, and Mm -hmm. she would be like, it would be like all the That's phrases. That's all you wanted to be because Clueless, like that was the thing. No, you my to sister's be like older than that. Clu- it was like really? the it was like the old old okay. Valley Girl. I uh, can't even tell you. Yeah, um, Valley the original Valley Girl movie. You ever see that movie in the early eighties? I don't remember. It Doesn't matter. Um, do me a favor. Yeah. You've been on the show twice. Twice. Maybe three times. Yeah. Why are you having me back here? <laughs> no one wants to hear from me. Everybody, you always hear nice things about you. There's a great Alexis Haynes contingency in the Dopey Nation. Okay. I am certain there's a Dopey story that you haven't told that you've hung up with me and been like, I should have told that ridiculous story. fucking know. Give me one. I don't think that there's any that I haven't shared. I mean, we've talked about my story. Let me think for, I'll rack my brain for a second. Do you want to hear a weird story that's happening to me right now? Right now, yeah. Do you want to hear an update in Dopey World? I do. Okay. Two weeks ago, Linda wanted to get us a dog. Okay. So we, I, me being, we went to see the dog. I didn't want the dog. I was like, I don't want the dog. We're not going to get the dog. And I called my sponsor and he, he was like, get the dog. So we get the dog. We bring the dog home. And I was, I like the dog. You know what I mean? But it turns out Linda doesn't like the dog. Oh, fuck. And the dog's growling at my father-in-law. Oh, and the fuck. dog's growling at my daughter's friends. And worst of all, the dog's shitting in the house. Okay? Yeah. Dog's got to fucking go, right? Mm-hmm. And Linda, like, is tired of the dog now. She's like, I want the dog to go. I want the dog to go. I was like, great. Let's get rid of the fucking dog. I'm like Linda. Huh? I'm like Linda. Today, she calls me up this morning and she says... Dave, I feel guilty. Maybe we should keep the dog. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, I don't want the dog. We can't. We have two kids. You know, we have a big house. And I obviously work in a deli from early in the morning. I get home late at night. It's a long commute. I I live 50 miles outside of Manhattan. Oh my God. I know. And I don't want the dog, but now she wants me to tell her to keep the dog. The Dopey Nation wants me to keep the fucking dog. Taylor wants me to keep the dog. I don't want the dog. No one knows who Taylor is. So Taylor is my friend from childhood. Taylor's also Chaz Palminteri's friend. Shut up. Sorry. You're breaking her fucking anonymity. Chaz Palminteri's a huge Dobie fan too. So Chaz, how you doing? No, but so I grew up with this this chick, Taylor Sachs. She's been my little best. You just blew her anonymity. Well, it's over now. Yeah. Well, because I mentioned the C word. Yeah. So she doesn't have... Um, she doesn't have a mic, but she's over here giggling at us and in our banter and our chaos. You know what? I don't think there's any real stories that... If you want to get all of the juice and all of the craziness... Here we go. Go read my book. My favorite story was the one where you pull the woman's hair. No, I lit her hair on fire. Oh, even better. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. That was such a good one. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I love that we can like laugh at this shit now. But okay, no, I want to go back to what I was saying about long term recovery Thank because you. this is important. I get, shit, I get lost sometimes. The reason why why I advocate for long term recovery is because we're not really willing to dive into the work until several several months. I don't think into recovery, and and it took me many years to work through all of the traumatic shit that I've had in my life. And I will say this, I blocked out my trauma and it wasn't until my first attempt when I got on Suboxone when I was 17 that all of a sudden I had a moment where I was triggered 
on my uh, about my abuse when I was five, and it was I one of the times that it happened was in a hotel room with who? What um, I can't out him, unfortunately, which fucking sucks. Um, but I was five years old, and it was my dad's wedding. And, oh, my um, God, that's fucking terrible. He was watching me and my sister in a room. He's 10 years older than I am, so he was 15. And um, this went on for several years. And But I walked into a hotel, and I was sober for the first time since I was 12. I mean, on Suboxone. So, you know, I was, like, trying, attempting to get sober. But I was more sober than I had ever been, right? Even though I was on, like, the max dose. And I was, I think I was taking, like... What's that sleeping pill that starts with an ambient to go to bed? So I was like, kind of, I was like on the med routine, you know, and I wasn't in treatment or anything, but I walked into a hotel room and you know that hotel smell? Sure. It smells like cleaning products, but like not bad, but like clean hotel. I know the and smell very well. It triggered a memory for me and all of a sudden I was flooded and I could feel his semen like dripping down my legs and I could fifteen year old kid. Fifteen year old kid and on a five year old five year old me in my flower girl dress at this at my dad's wedding. And all of a sudden I remember him pushing my face down into the bed and like leaning me over the bed. I was five years old. So there are are times when abuse is that brutal that you shut down and block it all away in order to protect yourself. And so when we have the Miss Blase Fords that come forward and say, you know, I was sexually abused by this man in college and I didn't say anything because I was scared or I blocked out and I don't remember certain parts of the incidents or the address of where we were at or any of these things, it's literally our brains shutting down in order to save us. And so I'm not saying that you were abused, but what I'm saying is this, that there is no addiction gene. There's no addiction. If there was an addiction gene, we'd know about it. We'd know about it. And it, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's interesting. You know, you have a hundred people that go and get surgery in the hospital, you know, and, two out of the hundred are going to become addicted. Right. And I would argue that two out of two of those people have dealt with trauma or are dealing with so much stress or so much anxiety or so much depression or whatever it might be that they're going to start self-medicating in order to cope. I also think we need to start looking at the scope. I mean, we're using in, in, in clinical practice now the, use, the, the name substance use disorder instead of addiction because there is a spectrum. Yeah. Not every single person who's, who's strung out on pills, on is, pills an is an addict for the rest of their life. I think that the way that we're operating as a society in this dog-eat-dog world, individualist, I'm better than everybody, I can conquer the world on my own, we've lost this our inherent humanity. We're not meant to operate as individuals. We're meant to operate in tribes. That's how we survive from the beginning of time. And so, of course, it makes sense that people are anxious. Of course, it makes sense that people are depressed. Of course, there's higher levels of postpartum depression than ever before because we're not supposed everyone's disconnected. To, to be live on our own like this. Right. And so when you see suicidality skyrocket, and you see mental health skyrocketing and you see all of these things, it makes complete sense to me why 
the 15-year-old in ninth grade or 10th grade is having panic attacks every day in this current society with social media and influencing and marketing and all of the information, why she needs to get on Xanax. It makes sense to me because I felt that. Right. You know, and unless you have the proper tools to deal with this fucked up, chaotic world we're living in right now, Mm -hmm. you're fucked. Right. You're fucked. Even if you get sober. You know what I mean? It's like operating on automatic pilot. Go, go, go. I've got to, you know, beat out all the rest. Survival of the fittest. It's not sustainable. But what I like to focus on, and I hear what you're saying, and I think a lot of people will benefit from hearing you say that because so many people are struggling with this stuff and so many people have kids that are struggling with this stuff. Yeah. My my older daughter is 10 and I like just see it all fucking coming down the pipe um, and I hate it. And I take her aside and I tell her like it's going to be okay and it's okay to be anxious and it's okay to, to be honest and she's like I was a very open kid and she's very private so I get a little bit nervous for her. Um, I like to focus on, you know, solutions and like easy solutions, like the easier, the better. And, um, and I don't know that there are, I mean, I think for me, like finding 12 step was the thing that saved my ass and, and then, and then enjoying being sober and then putting my work into whatever. But let's talk about why the 12 steps work and it worked for me really well in the beginning too and I would say it's because of community. We were just talking about how we're not operating in people tribes anymore. People to rely anymore. on, people to people trust. People to trust. Uh, uh, people who have been where you've been. People who understand your struggles. People who for the first time you're in a meeting and you hear something and you, and there's either two things. One, oh shit, what I did was not that bad and I cannot have so much shame around it. Or two, me too. Me too, bro. Right, like. Right. We're, we're not alone in this. What a gift that is. Simple tools and solution to, to healing is, is first and foremost uh, connecting with other people who are going to love you in your most unlovable moments when you feel like you're just the biggest piece of shit in the world. You know what I mean? That's an amazing tool. Right. And I think the 12-step stuff is very effective, but it's also kind of like the IKEA of recovery because it's just right there. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's the method, here's the directions, follow Mm -hmm. the directions, it can work out. And I think other paths uh, that don't have the connectivity between people and the easy communication and all that stuff make it more difficult. I always say, whatever you can do, whatever you can do to make your life more enjoyable, more fun, uh, not using like and that's working do it but what you're talking about is actually being able to talk to somebody because how long can somebody white knuckle it there's a kid at my job he's like 22 sweet kid and he came to me out of nowhere to tell me he's addicted to meth nobody else knew i knew there was something wrong with the kid and um he doesn't want to go to meetings and he doesn't want to do meth but he's alone and he, he's like, I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. And I'm like, that's why you go. Well, and, but, but here's the Bob Forrest method, right? And I think I've talked to you about this on your podcast before where um, uh, Tess, my sister Tess, we kept putting her into treatment and she kept going, relapsing treatment, relapse treatment, relapse treatment, relapse. 
And I finally found her again after she'd been on MIA. Nobody heard from her, yada, yada, yada. And I was planning this whole, like, you know, traditional intervention. You're hurting us. We love you so much. Please go into treatment, blah, blah, blah. And I called Bob Forrest and I was like, okay, we're ready to do this. We know where she's at. Will you come and do this with us? And he was like, fuck no. And I was like, why? Like, she's going to die. And he goes, we're all going to die. Like, what are you talking about? But what Bob's point was is this, is that if you want someone to get into recovery, you meet them where they're at. You can't make anybody do anything. And you love them. You know what I mean? The, 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 the dangerous and slippery path that we get, we get on with, with telling people they have to go to AA or we won't talk to them or whatever, whatever it might be, or, or we're only going to talk recovery or whatever it might, whatever these boundaries are. It just are. does the same thing. It's it the same disconnection. It's the same disconnection. Right. So I met Tess and she came in. I've never seen her that bad. Right. So high, an hour late, the whole thing. And we barely even talked about it at all. We just talked, caught up about life and all these things. And that's where in the program they talk about attraction rather than promotion. Totally. It's like, let's just hold space. And, and it, it feeds into the belief system that you're only lovable or valuable or worthy if you're sober. If you meet my expectations of you, which might be unrealistic. Totally. And so I think we need to start having these conversations and, and just have holding space for those who are maybe not ready. And I don't know that that guy who's not ready to get off meth. I don't know what secrets he's holding that he's not ready to address yet. And it's his right to use of if course. he wants to. Of course. You know what I mean? Maybe he's gay and he's not ready to accept it. Or maybe he's been abused and he's not ready to deal. Or maybe he has severe ADD and he's been self-medicating for years and he doesn't know what he'd do without. I don't know the reason. No, I hear But I'm going to meet him where he's at. The, and I'm going to love him unconditionally. I'm not going to give him money. I'm not going to you know, support him in any way financially. But I'm just going to say... I'd love to grab coffee. The and cool, the coolest thing though about what you're saying, I think, and the attraction rather than promotion is that when Tess feels you loving her, yeah. she says, "I want more of that." Yes, I want to be close with my sister, yes. and it that's where it kicks in. Yes, and I love that. And then, what do you know? Two weeks later, she she got better. You know what I mean? All she needed to do is to all she wanted was to know that she's loved and accepted in her most unlovable state. Here, I'm gonna hold. We're gonna hold for a second. Are you gonna try? Now I'm hitting record. We're back in with Alexis Haynes, and Alexis is gonna read a Dobie story. I love that you do this. Hi, Dave and friends. I've been listening to Dopey for a little while, and I've always wanted to send in a story of mine. I'm sober now, and your show is always reminding me how and why I got that way. Anyway, here's my story. I hope it's not too long. I try to cut it down as much as possible. In December 2017, I was staying at my boyfriend at the time's house in his tiny room size of a closet. My apartment had just burned down. Holy shit. Yeah. And I have lost all of my belongings and my six-month-old puppy. I was going to grad school part-time and working in mental health in the mental health field full-time. To say the least, I've always had mental health problems, and at the time, I was deep in my cocaine addiction and had just recently experienced a lot of trauma. I was on leave from my job because of my apartment burning down and I spent my days cooped up in that bedroom doing lines and never sleeping or eating. Somehow my boyfriend never noticed this. 
but that's another story. One night, he was in the kitchen hanging out with his friends, and I was, as usual, secretly snorting cocaine in the bedroom. I had been up for days. I had already experienced some bouts of psychosis from using at that point, but nothing like I was about to experience. I had this sneaking suspicion that my boyfriend and his friends knew about my drug use and were taking me, talking about me behind my back. I listened through the bedroom door and heard, in quotes, them talking about confronting me. Inexplicably irate, I slammed on my boots and coat and stormed out of the front door in my pajamas in the dead of night during an upstate New York winter. I somehow came to the conclusion that if I walked myself to the psychiatric center about five blocks away, I could turn myself in and avoid my boyfriend and his friends. I had my Coke stash and straw in my pocket just in case. As I walked, I picked up my pace to a jog, feeling as though my boyfriend and his friends were following behind me. Uh I started to be convinced that they had told my supervisor that I needed to be committed or something to the extent. I hallucinated that children on the streets were being pulled away from me by their parents and that people were (laughs) watching me from their windows. I was sure that this would be on the news. I saw cops hiding in in the bushes and ran past them. I quickly ditched my stash, oh fucking no, into a pile of snow and sprinted to the psychiatric center. As I sat on the front steps waiting for a staff member to come collect me, nothing happened. No one came, and no one was chasing behind me had caught up. The janitor inside glanced at me and walked away. I received an incoming call from my boyfriend. Where the hell are you? I didn't know what to say. What's going on? I know that everyone knows. I was convinced that he was in on it all and that the phone call was being monitored by the police, psychiatric services, and my supervisor. He didn't ask too many questions and told me just to come home. I was worried that he was luring me back to have me picked up by the police. I refused to come back to the house and made him meet me at an intersection. He did so, and we walked home. When we got back, I joined him and his friends in the kitchen and tried to act like nothing had happened. Still, Everything they said got misconstrued in my mind that they were hinting about my drug use. To this day, I don't know if it was my psychosis or if they actually knew that my boy and my boyfriend was just oblivious. We never talked about it in depth after that night, and he just chalked it up to my mental health issues and recent trauma. My boyfriend never found out that it was a drug-induced psychosis incident, and after all of that, the thing that I was most upset about was the fact that I had thrown away my perfectly good stash. Amen, sister. I feel you on that one. There is nothing worse than ditching the drugs only to find out that there was no reason to ditch them. Right? It's the worst. It's the worst. I remember I thought that a cop was tailing me and I was so high out of my mind and I had a thing, a little thing of oxys rolled up into a tissue paper. Here's a dopey story. Underneath my cigarettes, I took all the cigarettes out of the pack rolled up my little oxys uh-huh. and paper, stuck it in the bottom, cigarettes back on top, closed the thing. And I probably had like five oxys, each of which were like 50 bucks. So this was like expensive mm-hmm. at the time. Oxys are so expensive. And I pulled into a gas station and chucked the freaking box of cigarettes into the trash can because I was so paranoid. I thought the cops were after me that some I'd probably been up for like three or four days driving around. And... 
then of course, a few hours later, I kind of came to and Tess was like, well, where's the drug? And I was like, well, I threw them out. The cops were after us. And she's like, you fucking idiot. And so we went back to the gas station and I was digging through that fucking trash can. And guess what? I found the drugs. Was it the best? It was when I found it, it was the best. But I, I do remember one time I dropped, I dropped an oxy out of my window from like the, you know, third floor of the apartment or whatever. And I spent literally the entire day morning until sundown looking in the dirt for one fucking oxy. Wow, that's great. The shit we do for drugs. It's great. That dude, Dan, had told a story. He was with his wife and he threw a pill bottle down the incinerator. He's the fucking editor-in-chief of details digging in the dumpster to find his fucking bottle. And he found it. How many of us have carpet sifted? I mean, of course, countless times just to find one little like piece of dope that I can somehow cook up to shoot up. I mean, my, my, my weird recollection is before I ever shot dope, and I would snort dope and the straws, and then when you run out and you, you can scrape. tap, well, you could tap it, and it would be like yeah. all this dope, and I'd be like, "This is the greatest thing that's ever." I'll happened tell you to something me. grosser: using a tutor to smoke oxycon, it builds up the film on the inside, and then I would scrape the film right. out of the fucking straws, the disgusting and eat black it? What'd you film. Do with it? Or you smoke it again. Smoke it again. Yeah, the resin. Fucking gross. Wow. Smoking resin is disgusting. I would rinse my cotton. I would do whatever the fuck I had to do to get loaded. I would rinse my cottons and risk getting cotton fever. Did you ever get cotton fever? No, thankfully I never did, but I've heard that's like the worst hell on earth. I never got it either. And I, I, I I mean, as, as all the hell, whatever, whatever, I lived for that shit. Mm. Like when I would run out and I could figure out a way to get a deep, the first one, yeah. You know, the decent one yeah. where it has a nice color and you, you find every fucking cotton in the house. Yes. You're like, dun, 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 and it's a good shot. And you're like, this is the greatest thing that's yeah. ever happened. I didn't have to pay for this. You know, you feel like you're like getting yeah, away it's, it's with like, it. It's like you're free, yeah, but it's meanwhile. Like you're free, but you're yeah. really paying for it. Can we get Evan on the phone or Let's no? Let's try. Here, text him and I'll put him through my, my incredibly hi-fi speaker that you like to mock. Hold on. So we're not getting Evan, but the point, I had a whole plan. Okay, what was the plan? That this month, I think this week, it's our one-year anniversary being sponsored by Aloe. What a gift. They don't even sponsor me, and I'm the boss. There's a reason why they don't sponsor you. It's because you're on this fancy network, and they won't accept foreign sponsorships. No, it's a lot of money, I know. It's true. But more importantly, I am incredibly grateful to you and Evan and Bob. And I talk about another Bob and a Jared. Do those people exist or no? Yeah, they do. They exist. So Evan and Evan and Jared created Aloe House way back in the day, and it was with the intention of creating a space just to hang out for sober people, and then it turned into a sober living, and then after the sober living, it turned into a full inpatient, and the whole thing, and right at the time that we were transitioning from sober living to inpatient, Bob Forrest came along and really solidified the work that we were doing. He's just this mastermind in the whole um, kind of connection, not control philosophy that we have over there. I always say compassion, not control in the end. It yeah. should be connection. It, it, uh, it could be either I can, way. I can give me new material. But <laughs> That's good. We say connection, not control, where we care more about the connections that we're forming with people and then like, you know, controlling behaviors, which a lot of these treatment centers are all about just controlling behavior. Um, but we meet people with where we're, where they're at really. And then, um, no. And then Bob Howland 
is our intake coordinator and director, and he just he's he's literally on the front lines answering phone calls all times of the night, just really doing it. We couldn't do it. We have a staff, I believe, of about a hundred people now, and we could not do it with without you know that their support. It's it's a gift, and we. We honor them and, you know, we we take the work that they do seriously and we're so grateful for every single person that works with us. It's really, it's, it is a powerful community of people who have come together to change the way that treatment works. Well, we've had a, a bunch of people, a bunch of listeners go to Aloe mm-hmm. and I've only heard good things. Well, thanks. And I love doing the ad. Do you work with addicts there? What do you do over there? Yeah, so um, I do my best. Right now I'm stretched very thin, but like I said, I'm taking a little bit of a break because I've batched enough content to get me through June. And so I'll be back. I, I love running women's groups, and I do have clients that reach out to me that I talk to on social that end up going into treatment with us. Um, I go and visit on a, on a pretty regular basis. And then, um, and the other thing too, is you guys, if you, if you need help and you don't think you have resources, still reach out. I will find a place for you. I will do my very, very fucking best to get you somewhere. Well, that's the thing. I don't give up. Evan told me, I mean, we've been doing these dopey scholarships. I don't know if you've heard about this. We actually gave away two scholarships already this Mm -hmm. year and Evan wants to give one away from Aloe too. Yeah. So like we appreciate that. And, um, there's a lot of people who are struggling, who are listening Mm -hmm. and, um, they're going to hit you up now, yeah. just so you know. And if you're a parent out there, the biggest thing that um, my best piece of advice is always keep your kid on insurance. Uh, keep them on the best PPO policy. If you have a work policy that you can get them on, get them on it. Get, keep the insurance. I can't tell you how many parents were like, well, my daughter just turned 26 and we decided not to get her insurance or we couldn't afford it or whatever. I'm telling you, it's way cheaper to afford the good PPO insurance plan that will actually cover good treatment than it is to pay 20, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 dollars out of pocket right. to go to rehab for a year. It's not even close, right? It's it's so it's so worth it. What about sound bath meditation? What is it? So sound bath actually has had a pretty um life-changing effect on me um basically it's like an ancient tradition um each bowl makes a different sound and i'm not a sound bath facilitator so i don't know about this but each bowl i'll tell you the first time i had this experience was when i was in rehab obviously a different treatment center and this woman came in and did this sound bath it's these singing bowls and you like do it a certain way and it's it I thought I was tripping on acid. Like I was in the midst of like a meditation because it's a facilitated meditation and you're listening to the music too. And I was like, it was like a kaleidoscope. Like I was seeing all these colors and shapes and stuff. It It was an amazing experience. But sound bath is an amazing way to just be soaked in love by some by a facilitator. Soaked in love. Soaked in love by a facilitator that's coming in to spend 35 minutes with you to get you deep into a meditation. Um, each different singing bowl corresponds to a different chakra in your body from what I understand. Wow. And it just, I don't know, it's a great thing. We're all about 
the clinical and all, you know, as well as I guess that's what a real holistic approach is dealing with mind, body and spirit. So dealing with the mind and the mental health component, we have doctors for that dealing with the body and the detox and, you know, the good eating and all of that. We have chefs and doctors for that. And then the spirit stuff is working on the farm is the sound baths is, um, you know, the the sweat lodge, the the sweat lodge, all of that stuff, all of these things, you got to find what works for you, you know? So some people walk out of that sound bath and go, wow, I feel amazing. And some people are like, ah, that wasn't for me. So it's, you got to figure out what works for you. Right. Meet them where they're at. Exactly. Well, were you amazed at how amazing the, the dopey, fucking in-person experiences. Yeah, this is better than it's ever been. Wow. Better than it's ever better been. Better than it's ever been. This is five stars all around. And I'm I'm grateful to be here. Are you super happy to be in the in the home studio of my dad? I, I am. And you just met my dad. I met, Any impression? Uh very handsome. Very handsome. He's fit. He he has a beautiful apartment. Yes. It's a great space. Yes. This is a great part of town. Oh, hold on. Dad, dad. Come here. <laughs> come in here. We're I, I didn't I, I didn't my Alexis thinks you're very handsome He's and handsome. fit. He's now come fit. here. But but most importantly, you know what she brought for you? A filet of fish. You did. I know. <laughs> look at him. Oh no, wait. It's a fish sandwich. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I brought you a fish sandwich. Oh, sorry. That's my favorite. That's super. Absolutely yeah. super. You guys look so much alike. It's insane. Super, right? Yeah, it is It is super. And, um, <laughs> and she was and amazed at the Jewish population in the McDonald's, too. Well, it's the, it's the neighborhood here. I mean, the building. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dad. And thank you, Alexis, for the filet of fish. You know what? Thanks for having me. I'm so grateful. If everyone could just buy my book. I'd recovering from reality. Or listen to my podcast. Also recovering from reality. <laughs> or visit my website. Is it also called recoveringfromreality.com? <laughs> yes. Well. Or if you want to take one of my awesome online courses, we do have the Life Reset, How to Recover from Reality course. That Life we're doing Reset. How to Recover from yeah, reality. reality. We're doing a session in March and then again in May and then again in July. So it'll be every other month. Dude, you heard we might be doing DopeyCon and Aloe this, this May. Well, I'll fucking be there for that. Well, you better be I'll there. be the keynote speaker You'll- with Dave. So if you guys better be there. Yes. It's Fuck. the only place to be. Well, there you go. So um, thank you, Alexis. Thank you, Taylor. Sorry about revealing anything no, about you or your family's fine. friends. Taylor's fine. She'll survive. If I'm in town, I want to go to this. You will. And we will say, uh, stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to 
be so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. And my shadows getting smaller and smaller. And it's time to where I stand. Shadows getting smaller and smaller. City far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds, because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find. And I wanna be good so bad. Wanna be good so bad, so bad. I wanna be good so bad. Bad desires all I ever had. Damn it, all these suckers make me mad. Suckers make me mad, and I don't want to call my dad, and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had.